Hey, we're on. You ready? It's the 22nd of October. And, oh, look at this. It's the 23rd episode of the Soybean Best Podcast. Hi, Hi, everyone. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are yeah. you? you? Excited? I'm so excited. <laughs> That's great. I'm excited, too. This is my podcasting smile. It... <laughs> People at home can hear that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, what do we got to talk about? ESA meeting. What do you want to talk about with that? Well, I just wanted what to... We, I mean, not everybody knows ESA. Yeah. It's talking? our professional society, the Entomological Society of America. Every year there's an annual meeting. Lately, they've been bringing in about 4,000 people. For real? Is it really that big? Yeah, it's getting bigger and bigger. And then we also have six branches. We're in the North Central Branch. And so we have a smaller meeting around 300 people every year. So our, our, Did you our, say 4,000 people come to this meeting? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's growing like crazy, and so our national meeting is coming up. This year it's going to be in Minneapolis, and the only reason I bring it up is because I'll be presenting a poster on our podcast Yay. and some of the numbers that come from that. Yay! So um, just a lot of people have questions about podcasting, and we want to help others that are interested and in maybe starting it up, you just answering a few questions. You know what we are. A model? Uh, no, we're the Velvet Underground. Mm. You ever heard of the Velvet Underground? Yeah. What do you know about them? Nothing. <laughs> I just recognize the name. <laughs> so they were a band in the like late 60s that played at Andy Warhol's studio when he would have parties. Mm. You know who was in the Velvet Undergrounds? Bob Seger? No. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we might have to <laughs> Bob Seger and his but silver bullet band. Yeah, he's was, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't play the Andy Warhol crowd, right? I don't know. Um, Lou Reed. Hmm. Lou Reed. I mean, they're you like... You know Lou Reed, right? ki- They're kind of brothers, aren't you, they? I mean... <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a way that they're both men. Yeah. yeah. I guess they're both Americans. Um, but people say about the Velvet Undergrounds, nobody heard of them. They didn't sell a lot of records, but people who did hear them were so influenced that they went off and made their own bands. Hmm. So like the bands that you probably know, like R.E.M., yeah. You know, I yeah. yeah, they were heavily influenced by. Hmm. We're like that's us. Yeah, that's we're influencers. We're, well, I hope so. Hope other. That's why I said this. we're a model. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> you didn't like my term though. <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. I was just embellishing. Okay. We have to fill time today. Why? <laughs> we don't have to fill time. No, I guess. Well, no. I don't feel that way. Anyway. Wow, that was a. We all have. Uh, I have going. a poster there. We'll have lots of students. Presenting posters and papers. It's a very exciting time to network, talk about research, mm-hmm. really bug it up. We're going to try to find some people to talk to. Yeah, I think we're going to try to do talk, some live podcasting. Line up anybody? Neither have I. I bet we'll get John Tucker. Yeah. And uh, who else? He was asking us questions about podcasting. Yeah, let's get so, him. Yeah. He could tell us about the latest slug problem. Mm-hmm. Um, did we talk about this on this podcast? We'll slugs? About, yeah, how slugs became a problem in Pennsylvania because of, uh, they think because of the overuse of neonicotinoid seed treatments. Did we talk about this on this podcast? We'll save it for yeah. uh, for when we're up uh, in Minnesota. The sure. Uh, you okay? Yeah, are Is you okay? some tension here? No. <laughs> You're right, good. You want, uh, anything else about the national meeting? All our students are gone. Yeah. That'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Get, some of them, get, I think they're all presenting. Papers and posters, yep. Yeah, yeah. So the next couple of weeks will be uh, 
really working on finalizing their PowerPoints and their posters. Yeah, got to put our critical hats on and make mm-hmm. sure they're doing it right. Yeah. So, uh, so there's that. That'll be fun. Um, oh, and the guy that created PhD Comics, you know that one, Piled High and Deeper? Yeah. He's speaking at the end. Chang? Is his last name Chang? It sounds right. Yeah, I forgot his first name. You know name. what? I didn't think it was a guy. I was shocked by that. For mm-hmm. some reason, I thought it was a girl, a woman, yeah. who wrote it. No. But <laughs> He's very hilarious. He is funny. Um, it should be interesting to hear him talk. Okay. Hey, um, so for today's topic, I, was, um, I got the honor yesterday of filling in for a faculty member for her class. Um, and it's a class on uh, sort of like the latest breaking science of biological control. Mm-hmm. So she was asking me, like, what kind of science that's been published recently are you kind of excited about? So I shared this with about eight of our students. Have you seen this paper? So I don't right know. now, to our listeners, I'm showing I can't, I can't see it. the paper. This no. is in a. Um, journal called PLOS One, P-L-O-S One. It's a, what do you call it? It's a online... Open access. Open, that's the word. So mm-hmm. anybody can uh, download this and read it. Um, it says freely available online. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll put a link to it in our little thing so yep. people can follow along at home. The title of it is Natural Enemies Delay Insect Resistance to BT Crops. And this is a paper with a bunch of authors, some out of China, some out of the University of Illinois, uh, quite a few, one out of Australia, and, and um, one from Cornell. And I think the work was done in Cornell. Um, does this make any sense to you? Does it make any sense to me? So I don't far, know. I haven't you, seen it. haven't seen it. Well, what, all right. So I'll, I'll break this down for you. Yeah. Um, I, um, it was published in 2014, and... Um, when I read it, I was like, wow, that's that's kind of cool. I think that would be relevant to sort of what we're doing here in Iowa in the sense that we want to develop sustainable, useful pest management uh, programs, and BT crops are a big part of that, at least in corn, and maybe sometime in the future with soybeans in, in the United States. <clears throat> so what the authors did here is they worked with a pest... Um, in a kind of a field situation. The pest is uh, diamondback moth. What's the species name for that? I gotta look it up. Plutella xylostella. I think so. Yeah. So diamondback moth, we have diamondback moth. We have that here, right? No, I don't think so. Don't think so. Um, Anyway, it's a pest of uh, a lot of things. It'll feed on broccoli. So they have broccoli in this study that both expresses BT and doesn't. Mm-hmm. And this critter, this moth, as a larval stage, will feed on broccoli. And if it's BT, it'll it most like it most likely kills them. Except there are populations of this uh, moth that are resistant to BT, and they have access to uh, such a population. Um, guess where? Here. Yeah, really? yeah, in Johnston, uh, in Pioneer, oh. a colony of these. Um, but they have been found to be resistant in the field as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the authors wanted to do was find out if, if you had, say, a BT crop, and in this case they used broccoli, 
um, could you use a refuge? And would the natural enemies that attack the, um, the pest, would that help or hurt um, your resistance management plan? And there's some evidence in the literature, both modeling and, and some experiments, where natural enemies like predators and some natural enemies like fungal pathogens can both can do either one of those either reduce the uh, the amount of resistant herbivores or the opposite accelerate the rate at which those resistant herbivores overtake the population good so far i think so okay so they designed this experiment and i thought this was pretty cool they did this outside and they created uh, plots with that seven uh one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different treatments, right? So I'm showing Aaron this. For those of you following at home, this would be table two. And it's weird. They did this weird thing with this article. Plus one does this weird thing where usually you give the introduction and then what? The methods. And then the results, you know, and then the discussion. You know what they did here? Put the results up front. No, they put, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. See, mm -hmm. I thought you were going to say they put the methods up front. No, they put the methods in the back. Which uh, all of us were complaining about. But, yeah. yeah, it's not how I'm normally used to reading papers. No, no. So like when you're reading the results, you're like, well, okay, this, you know, this is the the results, but I don't understand any of it because I don't know what the treatments are. Yeah. So I got to go back to yeah. the very end. But anyway, if you skip to page six, table two, it explains the different treatments. So they've got BT and a refuge. They've got BT and a refuge, and then they add this uh, lady beetle, Coleomegala maculata. CMAC, BT, and then spinosad that's sprayed to the refuge. And I'll talk a bit about that in a second. BT, spinosad's an insecticide, right? So BT, and then they spray the non-BT, the refuge, with the insecticide, because that's kind of like what farmers would do. So they got that, they got that, BT, spinosad, and the natural enemy. And then BT only, non-BT only, and then non-BT plus the, the lady beetle, C-Mac. And then they did this really clever thing. So you know this, right? If you put out like a BT crop, the, there's likely, we anticipate there to be somewhere out there um, a, a member of that population that's resistant to the BT or to any kind of host plant that's resistant, right? There's, there's a small, 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 small percentage that there's somebody out there that's resistant. Yeah. And if you did this experiment with the, just the natural population of any pest, but say this one, you're working with a small percentage, right? So if you grow... Of resistant you, individuals. Right. Yeah. So if you did this experiment, you want to see how the rate of resistance would increase over time. It likely could, but it could take years, right? If you just do it naturally. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they, they grew these outside and they put you know, tents over them. And they developed in the lab a population of both that where they mixed resistant and susceptible individuals. So they increased the, the initial frequency of resistance in their, in their population above what you would expect in a naturally occurring population. So that they're kind of they're like rigging the game a bit. Mm -hmm. They're saying, look, we're gonna increase the uh, the frequency of resistant genes in this test population such that, yeah, it, even with the refuge, 
know, we would expect there to be some, like, like the resistance is going to increase over, over a short period of time, a time short enough for, for us to do the experiment, uh, basically six generations outside one, I guess it's one summer. Um, yeah, one summer. So what they, uh, so that way they can actually like see something. Quickly, right? They can test their hypothesis on whether or not the adding that predator is going to make a difference. So, are you, are you with me so far? Yeah. Is it? I think so. So excited. So what do Sounds. you think happens? What do you think happens? I'm trying to even guess seven treatments that. Um, what, what do you think happens to resistance in that? Uh, uh, Population in that over time, population. yeah. I would imagine it increased it in <laughs> increased <laughs> over time. Yeah. Do you think it mattered whether the predator was there or not? Mm. No. Okay. What about adding? What about spraying spinosad, this insecticide? Yeah, I would imagine that's detrimental to the diamondback moth and the beetle. Okay. But what do you think that? What do you think that spraying of the insecticide is going to do to the frequency of resistance? Shouldn't change it. All right. So there's your prediction, right? Sure. That's why we do the experiments, right? Yeah. That's why we play the games. Yeah. And if we didn't play the games, uh, the Cubs would have won the World Series. Yeah, you but never they know. they didn't. No. No, they're out. Got to play. That's too bad. But you know what we can say there? There's always next year. Yeah. But just like sports... In science, you got to do you got to do the experiments. You got to play the game to see what happens. Yeah. Right? So they do do they run this experiment. So if you're reading at home, jump to table one. That's on page five. This is what it looks like. So they've got the the seven treatments, right? And they show they they start measuring the survival of larvae that they took out of the experiment on uh, leaves, the broccoli leaves with the Bt toxin. Okay, so in generation three, they haven't had a whole lot of exposure yet to the Bt toxin, right? Only three generations. And if you go down the column here, you see that the frequency of larvae surviving on their assay is pretty low. Until you get to, uh, so we're looking at like 3%, 4%, uh, but then when we get to uh, Bt only, 75% of the larvae that they pulled off the plants are now able to survive on that Bt toxin. Mm -hmm. It's just in three generations. Now, yeah. that's they, they spiked this, right? They started with a population that had a you know, higher than what we think normal um, what uh, resistance uh, genes in their, po in their initial population. So that's kind of not too surprising, right? But when you have the refuge, it's only about 3%. When you have the larvae, or the, I'm sorry, not the larvae, the lady beetle, well, the rate of survival, the rate, the, this frequency of resistant uh, larvae is the same as if there was a refuge. Right? So it's not doing any, it's not, it's not hurting the refuge. Right? Now, jump to six generations. Now, compare BT only. Now, 93% of the larvae that they take off of the BT-only treatment 
93% are resistant. It's bad news bears. Yeah. 40%, about three, 40% are resistant in the um, BT with the refuge treatment. But dig this, BT with the refuge with the lady beetle, 6%. Hmm. That's kind of cool. And the authors, so they are helping yeah. delay resistance. Yeah. Kind of big time, right? Yeah. I mean, from 40% to 6%. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to three generations ago, it only changed from about 4.76 to 6. So that, that's a good thing, right? Here's the, so, so your prediction was, eh, lady beetles wouldn't matter. Eh, it looks like it's mattering, right? Then you said spinosad, this insecticide, if you sprayed the refuge. Because look, mm-hmm. farmers don't want to lose their crop. even They don't want to lose their yield even in the refuge. So they would spray uh, to protect those plants in the refuge. Look at the treatment that is BT plus the insecticide. At six generations, 83%, about 84% are resistant. Statistically the same as if there was no refuge at all. Mm-hmm. That insecticide's working against you. Yeah. And if you add the lady beetles to that, it doesn't help. Yeah. What do you think of that? Pause. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it kind of makes sense. I'm surprised. So those farmers who are spraying the refuge with spinosad are kind of, they're wasting money and they're also well, accelerating resistance. So I just showed you in this table one, people looking at this, just realize that this is just the per- percent of larvae that are surviving on the BT. Right. This isn't the number of larvae that were on the crops. You can look to figure one for that. So, I, and also realize that this is not totally natural, right? They're using broccoli and one natural enemy, one species of natural enemy, and one herbivore, and they're excluding everything else, and they're using cages to do this and try to control the environment a bit. I mean, it's outside, and, you know, they're using sunlight and day length and heat that's outside but it is a little bit uh, artificial right so it's not truly a a a farm but it does suggest that yeah like you said if you're if you're for this crop and for this pest if you were spraying your refuge in the short term you might be protecting your crop but in the long term you might be working against your best interests Mm -hmm. of keeping that bt that that resistant host plant viable and then the, I thought the cool thing was if you add that lady beetle you know you had that biological control that works in to, uh, to help you maintain the longevity the sustainability of that that uh, resistant plant hmm. that's kind of cool right yeah I mean, it's surprising to, that it would have that big of an effect. Yeah. And, and granted, they you know set up, they started with a population that they knew would develop resistance. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, we've got to look at that. 19 minutes. A long time. Did I talk too much about this? No. I, I think it's kind of cool. Um, and it's a, well, I could go on and on. <laughs> Should I stop now? <laughs> Should I stop now? Have I beat it today? <laughs>
No, I mean, it's it's those are the kinds of questions that we would certainly set up. I mean, broccoli isn't, would be a, a totally crazy system, um, but it's a model we, we talked about before. Right, yeah, we, right. If you think about, like, corn, corn borers or corn rootworm, adding biocontrol, which people maybe think don't have that big of an impact, can really right. help delay or um, slow down resistance developing if it if it uh, is kind of the same system, same dynamics that we see in broccoli here. Yeah, so to pull back a little bit, um, I think the way to think about this, and I think I've heard Aaron Gassman say this, that you know there's, there's IPM, Integrated Pest Management, where you're trying to figure out the most cost-effective, sustainable way of using pest management tools, like a BT corn. Uh, and then there's IRM, Insect Resistance Management, where once you've got that tool and you're using it, you try not to lose it. You, know, mm-hmm. you try to come up with like a refuge plan or, mm-hmm. you know, you mix them up, you know, from year to year as a way to keep the target pest from becoming resistant. Well, what I think this paper suggests is that you can combine IPM and IRM. You can combine your BT crop, or it doesn't even have to be BT. It could be, you know, something else. Uh, could just be naturally occurring resistance. But in this case, it was a BT. Um, you can combine that with biological control. Mm-hmm. And you may not need the biological control to be, to keep the pest down below a level where it's going to cause yield loss, but you need it to maintain the, the viability, the usefulness of that BT crop. Mm-hmm. And that, that, I think, is really cool. And yeah. It speaks to, like, a systems approach to dealing with pests. Yeah, and certainly we've been having some of those issues with corn rootworm here on the efficacy of some of the traits. And, yeah, that's interesting to see how it might spill over to other systems. And I, I think, like, for my research, um, well, for our research, when we think about soybean aphids, we know that soybean aphids are fed on by predators and that those predators sometimes keep them below... And on outbreak status. Mm-hmm. Well, if we bring in aphid-resistant soybeans, I think this research suggests even though we may not have outbreaks, we still need those predators. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to be thoughtful about how we might use insecticides for other things so that we don't lose those predators that could help us with our IRM, mm-hmm. resistance management. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, a few different angles, but I could see how there could be some overlap of the of this questions they asked for things that we're working in. Yeah. Yeah, kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> Get exposed to some new research coming out. Thanks for sharing. Why do I, f- I feel a little bit like the, the, the kid in the grade school class who uh, brings in his favorite car for show and tell, <laughs> a little matchbox car. And everyone is like, oh, yeah, thanks. thanks for sharing. Yeah, that was nice, Billy. I know you're really pumped about it. Yeah. <laughs> but... Nobody else likes matchbox cars as much as you do. <laughs> Nobody plays with matchbox cars. You remember those? Those are like, I, I, you go into toy stores now and they're not there at all. Mm. I don't think so. I think you can buy them. Could you? Yeah. Of course, I get two Girls. pretty, pretty princesses. Yeah, and they don't play a lot with matchbox cars. Yeah. All I'm saying is, I hope this research isn't the matchbox car <laughs> of the toy. Aisle. I mean, it certainly goes in depth. 
I mean, but those people that like to read research and kind of hear what the latest and greatest is, yeah. uh, we'll provide a link so you can see all the figures and tables for yourself. And they're free. Yeah. Not all uh, peer-reviewed journals are available mm -hmm. like this, mm -hmm. um, but this journal is one that is, and yeah, it should be. I, I think. Yeah, I'd be curious what other people think. Maybe they could write in and tell us if uh, yeah. they got anything Some out. of the takeaways that they yeah. got from this paper. Sweet. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. Yep. Okay. Bye. Bye.